Over the past few weeks, I've received numerous emails from fellow faculty and some administrators that question why I don't like being addressed as Professor or Mr. Katyal. On the first day of class, I usually open with a canned joke that if anyone says either Professor or Mr. Katyal, I usually turn around and look for my dad and I wonder why he's there in the room behind me. This works to break the ice on the first day of class, but apparently is not a satisfactory answer to those that are seemingly really flummoxed by the decision. In a future episode, we did somehow end up at this topic, but the trigger word there was deserved. It's a weird Indian thing, and I'm not sure it translates too well to communities outside the Indian subcontinent, but I'll try to explain anyways. In India, teachers are treated the same as customers are perhaps in the United States, in that the teacher or the customer is always right. But furthermore, they occupy a position of reverence, and in some cases, even godliness. Growing up, we were indoctrinated with the notion that each one of our teachers was an incarnation of Saraswati, the goddess of education, knowledge, learning, and music. Never in my wildest dreams would my parents or I have ever disagreed with an assessment that a teacher had made. Professors and lecturers occupied an even greater position of privilege because they had to have done research and dedicated more of their lives to the pursuit and the sharing of knowledge. In a country where the chasm between the richest and the poorest is infinitely wide, education serves as an important way to climb up the social strata and create a better life for one's family and oneself. The teachers and professors therefore hold the keys to the proverbial temples of knowledge and are ultimately charged with uplifting generations of people out of poverty. I fully understand that all of this sounds supremely hyperbolic, but it's all true. It's how I grew up. And it's how I came to appreciate the job that folks do as educators. So in my weird Indian head, the title of professor is something to be earned by those who deserve it. It is not merely gained by virtue of getting a job as a professor. It is a position of great responsibility and not something to be taken lightly. I'm not sure that I do believe in teachers being incarnations of Goddess Saraswati, but I do believe in the incredible and transformative power that education has, and by proxy, educators. Knowledge provides a sense of freedom that can never be stolen or taken away, and therefore the pursuit of it must be regarded as the highest ideal for any society to flourish. For centuries, teachers and professors have been tasked with the promulgation of such ideals. When I feel like I can do that and do it well, I will require my students, every single one of them at the very least, to call me professor. But until such time, I remain anurag. This rounds us out to another idiosyncratic Indian thing that unfortunately doesn't travel too well 
or make a whole lot of sense to people outside the Indian subcontinent. My first name is Anurag, and my last or my family name is Katyal. Just like the title of professor, the last or family name is something that needs to be earned as well, even though it's given by birth. My dad was Ashok until one day he became Chief Katyal or Chief Sahab, a term of reverence similar to the professor. He was trained to be a marine engineer with a background in electrical engineering, and he sailed on oil tankers for what seems to be like my entire childhood. At least 20 years. He needed to take examinations to rise through the ranks to become the chief engineer, and even after he had earned his chief ticket, he continued to sail as a first engineer under more experienced chiefs. He remains one of the most respected engineers in his field and has mentored many junior engineers along the way. And he taught me physics and some parts of chemistry when I was in middle school and high school growing up in India. I remember him saying that he would need a minimum of two hours of notice, my textbook, a notebook, and a pen before I could ask for any amount of help. He would then meticulously read each chapter, make notes, draw diagrams, and then come up with engineering examples and principles where basic physics ideas were used. I learned about the Archimedean principle of buoyancy with bilge pumps on Jahare Viking, the largest crude oil carrier in the world at the time. I learned about Le Chatelier's principle and equilibrium shifts by demonstrations of air conditioning units the size of our home. He was, and remains to this day, this vast library of knowledge. Free to share, but only with a two-hour notice. I also remember my mom constantly yelling at him to just teach me what I needed to know to get my homework done. But he thankfully never listened. Whatever is worth doing is worth doing right the first time. There is a right way to learn physics, and that is how I will teach it. I can vividly imagine the slow, deliberate manner in which he would draw his diagrams and write equations. I still remember every principle and example he ever taught me. And I'm certain so do all the other people he has shared his knowledge with along the way. As a result, one day he went from being Ashok to Mr. Katyal and to some Chief Sahab Katyal. He earned both the family name and his professional title. I hope one day I am able to do the same. And that day I will become Professor Katyal. As I have grown older and had time to think and reflect over the past few months, I'm increasingly thankful for all that he has taught me and continues to, but I've also come to admire and be in awe of his work ethic. His sheer ability to ignore an orchestra playing full blast while doing his work sounds like stuff of legend, but I see it every time I go to visit with my parents. He's close to retirement, but his powers of concentration seem to have grown exponentially. He manages still 
to alter his sleep schedule as needed and has an uncanny ability of going from being fast asleep to being able to solve a complex engineering problem that has plagued the chief engineers on ships in no time. There have been numerous occasions where my sister and I would just call it a night after being tired. And he was still in primetime work mode. Growing up in India, you're forced to work hard and develop a good work ethic because there are a billion people, literally over a billion now, who are working harder to have the same life as you. But when you get to the promised land, one would think that it would be okay to lift one's foot off the gas pedal. Chief Saab Katyal would just see it as a way to explain hydraulic pressure to a 12-year-old anorak followed by how the internal combustion chamber of a car engine actually works. And then how the air conditioning unit works and how all of it is based on simple physics and chemistry. When you have teachers like Chief Sahab Katyal, it's hard to accept the title of Professor Katyal, last name and all, until you have the same work ethic, the same attention to detail and a Herculean ability to do seemingly everything perfectly the first time. And that brings us to the guest on today's episode. There are very few people that I have met in my life who I would place on the same pedestal as my dad as it pertains to their ability to manage to do everything they do well. Not just well, but one would have to look with a microscope to find a fault and still ultimately fail to do so. These titans just have a different DNA, it seems. I came to know Tracy, as most of us probably have, through the Palm Beach State College Faculty Union Group. I don't think I need to rehash any of the marvelous things that she's done for faculty and students alike, so I won't. Here, is my conversation with Professor Tracy Siucci. I hope you enjoy it. How's it going, Hanarag? How are you doing? Pretty good. I got no complaints. How are you doing? Not too bad. Not too bad. It's been a good day. Long but good day. I'm, I'm almost done with grading. I have a couple other things to finish up, but then outside of that, I'm, I'm done. I'm ready for finishing everything by Saturday. I'm hoping to do the same on Monday. I've got, uh, I had a couple of professors I was helping today who mm -hmm. are uh, out past Belglade with no internet and they Yikes. were phoning their grades into me and I was putting them in. <laughs> <laughs> it takes a village. <laughs> I'm sure. I didn't even think of that, but mm -hmm. there might be faculty living in pockets where they don't have access to internet or they just choose not to have internet at home. I know a couple of people, uh, who choose to lead their life in that, where they keep work at work and they keep home at home. Yeah, or they're seniors. And uh, I, I told them, uh, fortunately for them, that you know their students probably don't have internet either. And so sure. they were doing quite a bit by phone and by personal delivery. The students were bringing things and dropping them to the house. And wow. It worked out. It worked out well for them. And uh, we did the best we could. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, very cool. I'm going to get started. Uh, I guess the open-ended question first. Tell me about Tracy Ciucci. Oh, that's oh. a big one. I don't, I don't even know. Uh, 
I don't start know. wherever you like and meander in any direction you want to go to in. All right. Uh, I, I'm a mom and I have four little ones and I uh, am a teacher and I'm a realtor and I've done these things for years. I've been teaching for 25 years. Uh, I started, I took the long road to teaching. So when I was in high school, I was one of our students. I didn't enjoy coming to class, so I didn't. And I barely got by, graduated with a 1.9 GPA. Now that I can finally reflect. <laughs> At the time, my mom was pulling her hair out. Now, you know, I remember thinking like, I'll be fine. You know, my mom wasn't sure. For sure. And I tested well and ended up um, going to the university and I was playing sports at the Western Michigan University. What'd you play? I played softball, I was a catcher. Cool. And I love that. I ended up coaching later, I love sports. I think uh, sports are everything. Um, I failed all my classes, so that didn't work out for me. And then I had to go and to the community college and I didn't see it as a punishment. I had just decided I was done with school and my mom looked at me was very young when I went to college. I was 17 uh, when I went off. And so she said, you can either get a job or you can go to school. Well, clearly I didn't want a job. So at the Absolutely. time my mom would drive me cause I didn't even have my driver's license cause I, I had not earned that. <laughs> so she drove me to the community college every day to take classes. And she drove me, I kid you not, every day of my undergrad, which was eight and a half full enjoyable years. <laughs> uh, she drove me for most of my master's degree. And then just for fun, while I was doing my PhD, she would still drive me and we would get a bagel and a cappuccino. She'd wait until I was done with class and pick up me and my classmates. And, uh, that's nice. On. So it was a, it was a long meandering journey, but, but I ended up, uh, you know, my mom joked that when I finished with school, one of my first teaching jobs, I was coaching at the university and some other colleges and my mom, my first teaching position was because no one else would take it. It was at a, a mid-max security prison in the state of Michigan, a couple hours from our house. And she, she would always say she knew I'd end up in the prison. <laughs> <laughs> she just didn't know I'd be teaching there. And uh, I enjoyed it. That was my first teaching experience was teaching in the prison, which I really enjoyed near Detroit in a town uh, called Jackson, Michigan. It's a, it's a large prison there, it's the largest one. And I was also teaching at, teaching at Kalamazoo College because I was uh, coaching there. Kalamazoo College is a liberal arts college. It's extremely expensive, about 1,000 students, and they're all perfect. And wow. I would leave one to go to the other, and it was like I didn't realize at the time because I was fairly young that I was having a unique experience that would really ultimately end up providing me a lot of insight into life. And uh, I hope I've made good use of the learning that I had at, at both of those places. Sure. And then I took a long road. I was a gypsy adjunct for a long time. I was teaching at my alma mater where I did all my degrees, Western Michigan University. Go Broncos. It's a very good place. And uh, made my way down here. So, I mean, I'll tell you the rest if you're interested since we're, since we're hanging. Oh, no, 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 please. <laughs> By all means. Go ahead. So I came down here 11 years ago. My entire family, the Siucci family, we're a big Italian crew. And we came together. So we had made a decision as a family because we all lived near each other within a mile of each other up there we had made mm -hmm. the decision that we were going to move to florida together it was my dad's idea and we all started talking about it and i uh i my sister lisa is a veterinarian she owns gardens animal hospital here she took a job in boca and she looked at me and said if you end up screwing me and not moving i'll kill you <laughs> <laughs> we had made a pact and i was the holdout. Sure. 
I didn't want to leave Kalamazoo, Michigan. It's a wonderful place. And uh, I wasn't making that much, but you don't need that much either. Mm-hmm. So uh, we ended up all moving. I got the position a few short months later in uh, at Palm Beach State. My sister Christina is a, a, an engineer and she works primarily from home. So all things considered, we all got down here within just a couple months, including a friend of ours and my parents. And, and we haven't looked back 11 years later. Well, is there any part of you or any other member of the family that m- I don't want to say regrets the decision, but wishes that things hadn't changed in the manner that they did? Um, if I'm speaking frankly, all of us at one point or another, I would expect mm-hmm. I mean, maybe without, I don't think my dad has, but all of the rest of us at one point or another have Kalamazoo, Michigan is a very different place than Palm beach, Florida. Absolutely. And, uh, we, <laughs> had a difficult time, I think, somewhat acclimating, um, only because we were so, we had a lot of that Midwestern guilt and we were like extremely uh, conscious of others. And we found that some people down here were less so, and that was a little bit unnerving to us and um, off-putting. And I was- In, in what sense? I mean, you know, press that further. What, what, can you be more specific? Where are you from, Anurag? I was born and raised in India, so I can, I don't know if I have the Midwestern guilt, but I don't know what the Midwestern guilt is. Maybe I have the Indian guilt. <laughs> you Maybe probably the same do. Thing. I'll give you, I'll give you a, uh, an example. Sure. So, uh, when I was on campus last, I accidentally closed the door on a woman as I was walking in and I didn't see her coming. And so the rest of the day, I felt guilty about having closed that door on that woman on the way in. And I made sure to hold extra doors open for people the rest of the day. So that might have been partly Midwest guilt, partly Catholic guilt. I'm also a very bad Catholic, but I still have that level of guilt. So all things combined, that's what Midwestern guilt is. So if a Midwesterner were to ask you a question, they would say, Anurag, I don't want to bother you. And I feel bad for even asking you. And I know you probably have a lot going on this weekend. And if you want to say no, it's perfectly all right. And I don't want to put you out. And how's your, how are your parents? And would it be possible you could run over and pick up my mail? You know, it might be something completely simple, but we would feel so incredibly guilty asking you. (laughs) That's Indian guilt. It's Indian guilt as well. And now I'm thinking, I thought maybe you were reading my message but it was pretty much worded the same way. I hope that this is as an inconvenience you. And if you find yourself needing to reschedule, I'm more than yes. happy to do that. And <laughs> yeah, that, that's, yeah, that's Indian guilt. What as part well. of India are you from? Uh, Northern. It, it's a small town up in the Himalayan mountains called Dehradun. Ah. Um, maybe at least when I was living there or when we were living there, maybe 10,000, 15,000 people. Wow. Now it's, since we left, it's become the capital of the state and things have proliferated, a lot more traffic, a lot more people um, by virtue of it being the state capital. And it, it's not the same town we left. Oh, I'm sure. I've been in that region. Um, oh, really? Yep. Whereabouts? We went, my sisters and I had gone for um, a few months the last time we were there and we had gone and started in a wedding outside mm-hmm. of Bangalore and Mysore and we did Kerala in the South and then we stayed there for some time and then we went up North and we were in Varanasi and then we did um, some golden triangle and went to Nepal um, and traveled around there for, for a while. So we had a really, that's awesome. We had a remarkable adventure. I mean, we were there just enjoying ourselves. It was, it was before kids or right, at, right after I'd had, um, 
one, my oldest mm-hmm. one, he was about a year. And so we had a great, a great journey really. Um, so we've enjoyed it. And I, when I meet people, you know, in real estate, I end up meeting a lot of people in my neighborhood from different regions in India. And um, I can almost immediately now tell, tell where people are from by the way they're dressed sometimes uh, <laughs> based on what the sari looks like, you know, uh-huh. how they're, how they're dressed. And it's, it's entirely like multiple countries all fused together at one, but they're, the food is unrelated. The dress is unrelated. The customs are unrelated. You know, it's, it's uh, each region really kind of stands out on its own, mm-hmm. but we loved it. And we really, we got, we got the best of all of it. We got to see the, the swanky, cool four seasons hotel areas. And then we stayed in areas that were less desirable and we stayed on, you know, lobster boats in the Kerala region and all over the place. So it was, it was everything you possibly think of. <laughs> That's wonderful. I, I've never been to Kerala or the southernmost part of India, mm-hmm. uh, but there are parts within the Himalayan region that I wish that I could go to. Uh, hopefully someday when I have time and the means to go back. I know my family keeps saying, hey, when are you coming back? And it, yeah. the last time we went back was... I think 2004. Back then, it was weird. The U.S. I guess consulate wanted us to go back to India to pick up our green cards and then come back with them from the U.S. consulate in New Delhi. We we're like, why can't you just mail them to us? We live in Coral Springs. We are here. You want us to spend, you know, X number of dollars to fly back in the middle of my senior year when I'm applying to colleges. You want me to leave school, go back to India get a background check in, in why, why isn't the background check done here? Right. Anyhow. So that was the last time I was there and there are parts of India that I don't miss. And I know my family are going to skewer me for that, but it's the, the hot polluted parts. But when you get up in the mountains, it, it's, I, I remember going back in 2004 and, and looking to my dad and we were starting to get within the mountains and your ears start popping. I was like, I can smell it. I, I think we're home. I, yeah. We're we're getting close to what home smells like or smelled like. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I miss it dearly. But that's that's wonderful that you were able to go to Nepal, and that's that's on my bucket list. We've enjoyed it. I mean, uh, one of the years and years and years ago when I was coaching before kids, when I had all kinds of freedom and money and time. And, uh, it's funny I, how kids take all those things away. Yes, they just suck them out. <laughs> I have four. My oldest one's 14 and a half. And I looked and I started golfing again this year, about six months ago. I hadn't mm-hmm. golfed since in 14 and a half years. And we used to golf all the time. And uh, before him, I spent summers in Europe and all over the place coaching and traveling for the, you know, coaching teams for us. And uh, I enjoyed that. I, I really did. And, and I didn't have kids until later until my thirties. And I'm glad, I'm glad that I waited because I enjoy the kids. I mean, they're really, they're not, they're not chaotic. They're glad to have each other. And we have a big family, as you see um, with my parents, my sisters and everybody. Uh, they're kind of used to our house being the center of everything anyway. So the the quarantine hasn't been as excruciating for them. You know, I feel mm-hmm. bad that they're missing, especially my older ones, my 12 and 14 year old, that they're kind of missing out on some formative experiences that you have when you're 14, although I'm avoiding the the bad formative experiences that I remember <laughs> that I had at 14. Sure. <laughs> so I keep thinking they weren't bad for me. They were bad for my mom. I thought they were great. <laughs> but at least uh, I keep thinking that we're delaying all of that. But, but the kids have been really good. So, so I've had, you know, some good, a good month 
you know, my, my worries are less so we're fortunate that my worries are less about us and more about our students and, you know, everything else that's going on, what they face. And even today, you know, you have students messaging you these bittersweet messages at the end of the semester. Usually we have hugs and high fives and selfies. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I kind of do these big classroom, all of us selfies and, and we do green screen room recordings at the end of the semester that I post on Facebook so everybody can see them and I send them to Amherst College and, and we don't have any of that. So just, it does feel a little hollow and it also feels kind of sad that I worry about them, you know, their financial situations they face, their health. I mean, uh, all of it. It's not as, it's not as uh, exciting as usually an end of semester should be, which you know. Um, and your end of the semester is probably less exciting than mine because you're a math professor. So that's much more difficult. <laughs> it, it's different. I don't know if it's less or more exciting, but it, it's, uh, I, I would say most professors probably see the, the same kind of questions and emails. I, I don't get nearly as much praise or, you know, this was awesome. Although when I do get it, it's even more so special uh, sure. because it's like, oh, I, I got through to that one student that I I was sure hated me and they perhaps still do and that's okay, but they hate math less now. Yeah. And if I had any part of that, then I'm happy that that happened, that, that they went through that change. Um, but yeah, it's, it's more or less the same, I would say. I, my son, my 12 year old, who is a truly you know, remarkable student and uh, a, a smart old soul he went into this year hating history and he got a history teacher and everybody said this history teacher is so difficult. You know, it's going to be very difficult. And he was notoriously a lot of work. And so my son was concerned in the first few weeks. And he said he wanted out of the class and that history teacher called me a couple times during the first few weeks and introduced himself and talked about, or my son, Ori, and he knew all about him and everything. So I was immediately impressed that he had done that because I know he probably has 150 students. Um, and then the next week when Ori didn't submit something, he called me again. So, you know, we were right on track. And then what I saw my son last week, another teacher had asked him in writing to write down um, what they might do when they grow up. And my son is firm about being a veterinarian like my sister. And he wrote, being a veterinarian. And she said, if you could teach, would you teach? And he said, sixth grade history. (laughs) And I know that that was an ultimate tribute to his history professor who, you know, as much as he's been very diligent, making sure and staying on top of all these students, which is an enormous magnitude of the job he's done, it's really made an impact on my son because he sees that and senses it. And, and it's, it's been a remarkable change. So I think, I think in your position with math, it's probably very similar. Uh, it's a daunting task that you have ahead of you. And then by the time you're done, it's extra rewarding when you've made the difference for the students that can really move forward because they start with a deficit many times and that's difficult to overcome. I think so. It, it certainly feels nice when they get over it and they say, hey, it wasn't as bad as we thought it was going to be. And it's like, challenge accepted. Next semester, it's going to be a lot worse for the next people. And they say, no, 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 don't make it worse. But it's like, well, you just told me that it wasn't as bad as it could have been. So, yes, that's a good challenge for me. So how, how did you get into academia or why teaching or what made you choose that path? Uh I'm still the fraud in the room and I should have never been a professor. I have no idea. Everything I've ever done really has fallen into my lap. This was no different. I was coaching. I wanted to coach. I was doing a master's degree when I started my PhD, which was in higher education, leadership, leadership, research, technology, and law. I did it with kind of an emphasis on stalling life starting. So I had no intention of doing anything with this. I just wanted to not get a job. 
And in Kalamazoo, Michigan, you can live with very little. And I was doing fine, adjuncting, mm-hmm. coaching. So um, I was, I had been there so long. I'd been at the university for so long, for God's sakes. I mean, <laughs> I'd been there for like 15 years, just hanging out, really. Started at 17 and I was, you know, probably at that time I was 25, 27. And they said, well, do you want to teach a class? And I was like, no, but I'm broke. <laughs> so, and my um, dean, so the woman that was the chair of the department, um, Dr. Deborah Berkey, and I had other women that were really, truly remarkable role models for me. My coach, um, Kim Warden, he was also teaching and coaching at the university. And another woman, uh, Jean Hess, who was a chaplain, coach, teacher, volleyball coach at Kalamazoo College. And they all had kind of championed me when I was just kind of floating along doing whatever I wanted. And they saw in me something that they thought was worth reaching down and pulling up. So at the time they were, you know, kept asking me to teach and it didn't take much because I was broke. So I said, sure, I can teach because I come, I came from a family where the thought process in the brain of the people in my family is, of course, I can do whatever anybody else can do. I may have to watch a couple of YouTube videos to figure it out, but I'll get there. And so I said, yes. And I had a class in five minutes and a week later I was teaching. And I, I remember thinking to myself, um, my only real skill in life is this kind of uh, uh, social being a bullshitter, you know, and I thought I could bullshit my way through this. <laughs> I stood up there and I had a plan and I was like, okay, I look important. I should, I should be doing this. And I had the book and this was, I had, I actually had a hybrid class too. So a week before the class begins, 20 something years ago when hybrids didn't even barely exist. Wow. I get dropped in my lap this as well as I was simultaneously teaching at the prison. And um, I remember showing up to the prison the first day and I had a a briefcase because I thought that's what professors did (laughs) (laughs) and nothing in it because you weren't allowed to bring anything into the prison. So an empty briefcase just to like guard myself with importance. And I had a suit and I looked like a professor, you know, very young, strange looking professor, but a a professor nonetheless. And um, by the time I got in, they took my briefcase uh, I couldn't bring that in, obviously. And, mm-hmm. and uh, in the next few times I went, I wore jeans, boots, sweatshirts, and hats, which is what pe- Michiganders wear <laughs> everywhere mm-hmm. universally. <laughs> and, you know, fit fit in much more so, or at least I thought, and uh, did my best to try to acclimate. But I've always been preceded by people who I think gave me a helping hand where I probably didn't recognize at the time that I was ready to do something, and they insisted I do. And I became a teacher. So the first the first semester, I remember thinking to myself, really like students. I knew that. I was coaching at the college and at university college and high schools. I coached a bunch of places and I loved students. I loved teaching. Coaching is teaching. And I really enjoyed that. And it translated quickly to the classroom. So I've, I've always really just kind of taken to it. And I don't, I don't ever believe that I'm a good professor. I think I'm a good, I think I'm good at connecting with students. And I think that's what do you think the difference is? I think some people, I've heard some people in their disciplines who are just gifted, like I may come to a chemistry professor's course or uh, public speaking or no matter what it is. And I always sit there and think to myself, they're really gifted professors. And I don't know that I've ever been a gifted professor. I think I have an ability to make a unique connection with students. And I've translated that into being able to do it online, which is difficult. It's not organic to just say, Mm -hmm. hey, how's it going? Where are you from? Do you have any brothers and sisters? I mean, it's not a normal um, social dialogue to do that online. And uh, it's translated, you know, the same as a Facebook page or anything like that. You're you're either good at it or you're not. And um, fortunately, I've been able to connect with students, which I think is the 
one of the only reasons that they end up doing well, staying in the class, connecting and learning and leaving, feeling as if they've, they've made that connection that will hopefully change their experiences. So I hate to be dense, but how is that different from being a good professor? So I meet a lot of professors who are good at the formality of teaching and they're okay. excellent in their disciplines. And I don't know that they notice that there's a classroom of students sitting there. And I think sometimes Fair. that can mean that they're great at, um, you know, at the content and great at being able to uh, organize or do a lot of the things that are necessary. But I feel like unless you're 100% committed to that connection to students um, through however you, you attain that, then it's, it's not always as great as it could be. And some of that I think is personality driven. Some of it I think is ego driven. Some of it I think is um, maybe they don't know. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I do think that the, the biggest complaint students would have would a lot of times be, be not having that connection to the, some professors. And they're in the minority. I very rarely meet professors that I think to myself, I surely wouldn't enjoy taking your class. Um, but we meet them. And for the most part, we're fortunate because I've had the good fortune to work with our faculty side by side, sometimes in leadership roles, sometimes in I'm learning from them roles and everything you can possibly think of. And I always walk away amazed. It doesn't matter the work I'm doing for them. If it's a through a grievance or through a classroom where someone's asked me to work with them in the classroom or I've asked them to work with me in the classroom. I've gone to speech professors courses as I was de designing an assessment regarding something that they were doing for speech. I don't know anything about speech. I think I took one class and I probably showed up half the time. So I asked our professors, can I come to your class? And they say, sure. Would you like a rubric? Would you like this? How can I help you? And it's just been a gift to be able to learn and, and stand side by side with the professors that we have. Um, and I think our professors choose our school, the reason that I chose our school, which is because of the students that we have, not in spite of. And, sure. and the ones that chose in spite of end up not making it. Uh, you have to be dedicated to the whole person and not just the world of academia and your discipline when you come to Palm Beach State College. You have to make sure that that's the reason you're there is because of our students. Fair. I would still say you're a good professor. <laughs> I, I'm still stuck on that because I, I would argue that if you're just a fantastic researcher or you have the ability to simplify abstruse ideas or, or weird concepts that other people might find it difficult to understand, you, you still have to be able to stand in front of a room full of people and say, this is why you should care about it. And I think that that only happens when you try to make a connection with the students. Otherwise, then you just say, well, I don't care if you understand or not. I understand it. And here's the way I understand it, or here's how I can elucidate it to you. But if you don't care, I don't know that you can be a good professor. You might be a good academic. I don't know. I, 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 I've I just agree. had, you, you I, I've had classes. I, I do agree. Uh, I don't think that someone can be a good professor without caring. Um, I think my connection with them sometimes is not necessarily the connection. It's that public speaking is easy for me. And Fair. that makes my students like me better. So I, I watch and read reviews of other faculty members and I see, you know, the hardships that they face. People can be a good professor and not always be rated fairly 
on rate my professor or other types of places. So, Oh, that wonderful website. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think to myself, of course I get better reviews than an anatomy professor or a physics mm -hmm. professor, or God forbid, a math professor, <laughs> you know, which I could never aspire to be. And I think, of course I do. I have to give less F's. And does that make me more popular and more likable? Sure. It does. doesn't mean I'm better at it. Uh, and it also means I have a, a different kind of discipline where we can talk a lot, a lot about more current events, societal constructs, things that are going on. And it's easier to make those connections. And public speaking is easier for me than some. And because of that, it gives me this kind of perception that I'm good at teaching. I'm not good at teaching. I'm a good public speaker and I like students. And that sums it up. <laughs> and I'm sticking with that on your You're not going to talk me out. All right. I'll, I'll <laughs> meet you halfway and say you're a good professor and you can choose to disagree with me. <laughs> So the, the major question that I had in my head was, um, and I, I think I've written about this and I've spoken with other people about this as well. In fact, we were talking uh, during the bring your own meal to Zoom meetings. I was talking with Sungji about it uh, either today or yesterday or one, one of these she's days. remarkable, really. She is. She's wonderful. And the usually when I describe a, a female professor at Palm Beach State who has an endless motor, people are like, oh, Tracy. <laughs> okay, so it's not just me that thinks that. So how is it that you manage to be a mom, be a realtor, be a professor, be a wife, and do all the things that you, well, choose to do well? How is it that all of that fits into your day do you and I, I mean that in more of a logistic manner not necessarily I just choose to do those things a lot of people choose to do a lot of things but that doesn't mean that they get them accomplished so how do you actually get things done uh, to the level that you do you know I get asked that a lot and I usually I usually make a joke about it and uh you can make the joke, I don't <laughs> mind. but as long as you give me an actual answer after, <laughs> I don't mind the joke. I usually, my joke is that I don't do any of them well. And, uh, and then I laugh about it and we walk, we part ways and it's usually asked by, I think that there's an entire Google group of members that would disagree with you, but go ahead. <laughs> I, uh, I don't know. I mean, it, I know it's my husband jokes that if there was another hour in the day, I'd find something to fill it. And mm -hmm. I get up early. I don't sleep that much. Um, you know, I'm, I, I end up, I have incorporated, I think, to be honest, I think I do know a little bit is I've incorporated this and I've tried to tell this to some professors now who are jumping into the world of online, not by choice and by force, you know, because, because that was what was required now with the pandemic. But um, I've tried to explain to them teaching online is different. It's, it's become a part of my life. So while I've been on the phone with you, my Apple watch has buzzed a few times because my courses are open until Sunday at midnight mm -hmm. because I'm an idiot that leaving them open till Sunday at midnight, I'm a sucker. So I'll be doing grades until literally 5.59 on Monday, when, the minute they're due. And, sure. Um, but my, my, my watch has been buzzing and I've responded. My phone tings and I respond. It's students. It's not a separate entity for me. And I know a lot of times people think that means I've not created boundaries. I've intentionally, mm -hmm. I've intentionally not created boundaries. So I've told my students, they can, they have, they all have my cell phone number. I know other professors think that's a bad idea too. I live with, I'm okay with that. And, uh, 
and they message me. They don't abuse it. I very rarely get direct texts, you know, in emergency situations, but I make sure that they have it. And I try to just balance everything by doing it as quickly as possible. So that way it doesn't pile up. So right now, if I were to get a request for real estate or if I were to get a student message, I'd respond in a few minutes. As soon as we're done, I'll take six minutes and send back a few documents that I may need to send and a couple of quick instructions on how to submit something. So I don't wake up tomorrow. I don't wake up with massive to-do lists every day. It's more like um, little bits and pieces throughout the entire day. And I'm home with the kids a lot. Um, you know, I'm not on campus as much as they'd like. And most of the, the load that I teach is online or hybrid. Um, but I just make sure that the needs of my students are met. And I'm always at every possible thing. So I've been, I've channeled my entire life around being at every event that could possibly be needed for my kids. I, I've not yet missed a Thanksgiving party. I've not yet missed a Mother's Day event at the school or a sporting event or anything that I can think of because that's my first priority. Um, you know, the rest pales in comparison to it. And we show up as a large pile of Italians. So my entire family shows up <laughs> as well. Uh, and they, they know that that's their comfort zone and that's what they expect. And uh, we do that. And when we have nights where my husband is taking one kid here and I'm taking another kids to dance in gymnastics and my sister's taking to somebody to soccer or whatever. That's just the way we've done things. So I have a good village of people with me to be able to help. And I'm fortunate that I have my parents, my sisters and um, everybody be able to do that. And I've just become used to balancing the students because I've done this for a very long time, you know, with the students, you know, online, I've taught tons of classes. I mean, some, some semesters I've taught more classes than anybody would believe. And uh, I don't think too much about it. And the real estate for me is different because I've, I've created a bit of a niche with my neighborhood. So almost all of my uh, real estate is in my neighborhood. And uh, that certainly helps me, you know, be able to be, to be local. Like I have a listing sure. tomorrow. I'm, I'm doing a photo shoot on a listing tomorrow. It's five doors down for me. So I'll walk over there with a cup of coffee at 10 in the morning. Um, walk out, walk past a couple other houses that I'm about to get on the market next week and you know, post them on Facebook and, and share with friends. And all of real estate is the same as I think of um, kind of teaching. It's helping families through the most stressful time of their life. And until I started real estate three years ago, I had no idea what I was getting into. <laughs> you know, it was through divorces and deaths and needing larger homes and then the very stressful um, selling and buying, you know, very expensive you know, the most important investment you'll make in your sure. life usually. And, uh, and I have got, I feel like I've gotten very good at it. I feel like I have it. Um, I have a unique niche with it because I have a lot of connections to be able to put people together that are looking for homes or buying homes or not even listed. And, and, and I've tried to always maintain fairness and just a good reputation in particular, because it's my own community. So if I move somebody in five doors down, I'm certainly not screwing them. Uh, <laughs> making sure it's fair and you can be, you can be damn sure by the time we're done with this, everybody's going to be happy because, uh, you know, my, you get to hear it. my reputation depends upon it and I have to live with these people. And I can honestly say most of the people I've sold homes to or, or sold houses for are very good friends of mine because you become close through this strange process because mm -hmm. it is an intense, stressful, difficult situation for them. And I try to just make it much less so, um, you know, much more even. So I don't know if that answers your question. I, I still don't it, balance any of it well. I mean, <laughs> well, the outward perception is that you do. So perhaps I need to become a better actor. 
you know, I, I do think to myself, I think I get that I have a good Facebook page. You know, it looks like everything's going well. Partly is because I don't bitch on Facebook. I mean, I don't, I don't post complaints and, um, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes I'll have political tirades or other types of rants that I enjoy. Usually that's fun for me <laughs> to, to be able to post something and have people try to challenge me. And I, I enjoy that. I don't do it. I don't do it often, but, um, I don't, I don't believe in posting complaints. I generally don't complain. I don't like, um, I don't see the purpose. And I always think to myself, if you can't change something, then why are we talking about it? Um, so it is, it is different. And I know, um, it's a different perspective. I know my sisters are also very similar and we all kind of, I I talk with my sisters and my parents every single day and usually I'm with them every single day. Um, and it's just a different, I think, thought process on, on how we do things. Um, I try to figure out ways I can say yes and do whatever it is that I used to say when I was young, I wish I could do something. And instead now I just say, what can I do? And I figure it out. And if there's, if there's nothing I can do, I've come to accept that I've told, I've told some, you know, some students in some situations, there may be nothing I can help with, but other students, you know, I had a student a few years ago came to me, he was sitting in the front row of my class. And this was one of the most life-changing experiences I had teaching. And his name was Patrick, this really handsome young guy, probably maybe 22. And he kept staring at me sitting in the front desk, right in front of the computer. So because I'm chatty, I'm logging in the computer, talking away. And he would always stare at me and smile, but never respond. And so the one day I said to him, I said, can you hear me? And he didn't respond. And I said, and, and I said, do you speak English? That's a, that's a normal question to ask our students if they don't respond. Sure. Most of our students, a lot of our students are English as second language. And he didn't respond. And so then I pointed to his phone. I showed him my phone number and I got his and I texted him. And he responded back that he couldn't hear me because he was deaf. And he had a tinnitus where it was a, an incredible ringing in his ears as well. And so me and all my arrogance said, wonderful, we'll have a, you know, a, a sign language interpreter come to the class. And we actually had one in that class with another woman. And I said, I'll call her. Her name was Debbie Itke. She's a wonderful woman. I said, I'll call her. She's going to come to class. She'll sit over by you as well. You know, and he goes, I don't know sign language. I thought that had never occurred to me, <laughs> you know, but of course he didn't know sign language. He grew up poor. Nobody cared sure. that he was deaf is really what it came down to this poor kid. And so long story short, he says to me, he goes, I don't have hearing aids. And I said, well, what can we do? He goes, if I had hearing aids, it would remove the tinnitus and I'd be able to, you know, hear. And, and I was like, okay. So I sat back and thought, well, we'll get you hearing aids. No worries. I'm going to call people. You know, there's got to be places you can get hearing aids for people that are poor because of course you're poor. You should have hearing aids. A week and a half later, still no hearing aids. And my arrogance had run out. And I had called every possible entity I could think of, pulled every string I could think of, and ended up running a GoFundMe for this kid. We raised about $7,000 and, um, and also got him hearing aids because a company out of Minnesota had seen the GoFundMe and they had donated um, hearing aids. So we had enough mm-hmm. money for him to be able to help with his school because he had failed the class. That professor professor was unwilling to revisit his grade after finding upon finding out that he had been entirely deaf while taking her class. Wow! And um, so we had I helped him with some great appeals and some other stuff, and he got the hearing aids. And the whole time, so the following week when I showed up to class after class, so ever everybody left, and I kept Debbie Icky, the sign language interpreter, and the other woman who was also entirely um, deaf stayed. And 
I, I had told them what I was going to do. And so I put the GoFundMe up and showed it to Patrick. And he didn't say much because, I, you know, he was overwhelmed. And he had a, a two-year-old at home. And so the following week, we got his hearing aids, about five days later. And he texted me and said, I just heard my daughter laugh for the first time. And I thought to myself, that's, that's the only reason that I'm good at being a professor. It has nothing to do with teaching. It's just um, trying to help students. And 20 years ago, I might've said, oh, you know, we'll have to send you to disability services or figure out somebody else that can help you. And um, that somebody else is us. So, uh, and, and I'm still friends with Patrick. He's a DJ and I'm friends with him on Facebook. And he went onto the Facebook page because I raised that money from, you know, yuppie moms that live near me. And he thanked every single one of them um, and couldn't have been, you know, happier with that. So I think that's what professors do all the time. Uh, that's, that's, that's what all of us do is we figure out whatever the disadvantages our students have are, and then we try to equalize them and then help them to be able to rise up to whatever challenge that they face in life and in our classrooms and, uh, and whatever it is that they're about to face that they may not yet know is coming. Um, and that's all that we can do. I still think you're a good professor. <laughs> you can say whatever you want, you're but I, I by the bullshit out of <laughs> <laughs> My grandfather used to say, "If you can't dazzle, uh, if you can't impress them with your brilliance, dazzle them with your bullshit." <laughs> and I said, "What happens if I have neither?" Then he said, "Well, then you're just going to die poor, son." <laughs> he didn't say it in the same exact manner, but All he right. said, "Well, get better at one or the other. Don't you know, either." do well in school so that you can be brilliant and you can convince people to do the things that you need them to or, or allow you to do the things that you want or you, you got to speak fast enough to where people don't catch on that you're saying nothing of substance. <laughs> I said, I talk too slow and I don't know if I know enough about anything to be able to, to dazzle them with my brilliance, but I, I did okay, I guess. You've done great. And it's funny because so in preparing for this, I was thinking to myself, oh, I'm thinking, where is Anya from? Where is, and I'm looking, I have, I see your Facebook posts. You always post really witty, interesting content. I see your, you know, help with the faculty. As a matter of fact, when we filled out that survey, you were one of the people that I gave a shout out to and said that I think you've done a remarkable job assisting faculty. Oh, thank you. The change and the challenge and really bringing your own, uh, you know, your Zoom meetings and your Zoom breakfast and lunch that is what you know being a good professor is and i thought to, uh, to myself what an above and beyond it was and it was inspiring to the rest of the faculty so that made a big difference to me and i've i've spoken about you and you know, other professors as well but you really stood out to me as a shining leader this semester when i think the faculty needed it the most so i i watched and was really just incredibly proud of that and thought to myself that it was needed and you went so far above and beyond that it was contagious to others. So, and I know that stands out on the Facebook page. I know it stands out on the, the Google group. It stands out on the teaching and learning Google group that, that uh, Sung Ji had set up, which has been a remarkable resource as well. But the resource of doing things like that is I think the most valuable resource of all. Uh, not a nuts and bolts resource. It's a reminder of who we are to our core. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Uh, on a slightly unrelated note, I received some wonderful questions. And the, the reason why I, I emailed you or I messaged you through Facebook last night was because I thought 
I, I spoke with this individual this morning and then, but she had, or he had already sent me these questions beforehand. Mm -hmm. And I said, these are custom fitted to Tracy. <laughs> these are questions that, you know, I have to ask her and I could ask other people as well, but these are questions that I have to ask her. I don't think she's going to be offended by any of them. Whereas other faculty members are, you know, I haven't had a longish conversation with you before, but you didn't come off as the person that potentially could, you know, just, this is over, you know, <laughs> do, do one of those moves. Uh, and I thought that I would get your honest opinion, even if it disagrees with mine. So if you don't mind, here's the first one. In one year from now, how do you imagine normal life? And there's a couple of parts to this. So you can, I'll, I'll read the whole thing individually after. In one year from now, how do you imagine normal life? Will we continue to navigate the world without limitation and regard social distance? Will grocery stores like Publix keep their sneeze guards installed? Will we continue to wear face masks as a usual precaution? How do you define the new normal? So there's a couple of things in there. Yeah, I mean, if you want me to repeat anything, I'm happy to. Overarching questions, but I have been thinking, obviously I've been thinking quite a bit about this. Uh, I have family members uh, with compromised immunity and health that are in my house and seniors that are facing extreme circumstances that has warranted us being extreme quarantiners. So we haven't gone to a store once. We haven't ordered food, takeout deliveries or, um, or driven through, had food sent, nothing. We do one grocery delivery a week. My husband brings it in with gloves into the garage, wipes everything down, de unboxes everything. And then um, we Lysol everything like crazy. The kids aren't allowed to touch it, that kind of thing. So we've been pretty extreme about it because of, you know, those reasons. Um, and I don't know that I see, so I've been thinking a lot about this for a few reasons because more so for fall than my worries about me returning to campus is my worries about the kids returning to school. And I think, what does fall look like? I don't know yet. And I know it's going to be a game time decision, whether that looks like my kids attend school or if there's an online or homeschooling option. And I have compromised family members, then I may end up having to do the most difficult of all tasks, teaching my own children. I'm, I've done it before. I've homeschooled for, for some short periods of time. And um, I always regret it. <laughs> sure. You know, they, the only teacher request they did for next year was not me. <laughs> so I don't know what that looks like. And it does concern me as far as being out in public, what that will look like. I don't know what a sneeze guard is at Publix <laughs> because I haven't been to Publix. It's one of those, uh, I think, plexiglass slash acrylic oh, things that they have in front of the deli counter so that, well, you don't, if you sneeze, then it doesn't go on all the meat. Uh, I think that's a good idea. Um, I've changed things for other types of things as well for real estate. You know, a lot of times I'm not... Uh, I'm not walking into houses with people and, mm -hmm. and we're very cautious about, I, I have a home that's for sale and it's occupied. And so we spray down the door handles and I have them leave all the lights on and the doors open. And I ask the buyers to sanitize before they go in and when they come out and not to touch anything while they're in the home um, and that they're wearing masks, uh, that kind of thing. In a year from now, I don't think, I think that this has changed the way that I think about everything. And what concerns me about this is, so Anurag, I feel closer to you 
in an odd way because we are friends on Facebook. I felt a connection to you through your Google presence as well as through your uh, podcast. So I do feel like I know you. So had I seen you come August, I would have given you a ridiculously uncomfortable Italian Midwestern bear hug. <laughs> and, and you would have had no choice. But and I would have awkwardly, in my own Indian manner, <laughs> exactly. reciprocated. Yes, and I know. And that then apologize for not knowing how to reciprocate a, a bear hug. <laughs> I agree. I did this all the way through India, so I know exactly what you mean. And I, I think to myself, I crave that human connection. I mm-hmm. usually I see no less than you know, a thousand people a week, and we think a get together with my family is twenty five, and just my neighbors is fifty. And if it's a party, it would be more than a hundred at my home. And I'm the one who's feeding everybody and enjoying that. And that's what I love to do. It has been, you know, a a challenge, not just for me, but for the kids, because they're used to that too. And I see it in my son's journals. They have to write journals online for their daily presence. And they said, what do you miss? And one of my boys wrote all my mom's friends coming over till the middle of the night with the kids. And they mean their neighbors, my neighbor's friends, you know, all these mom friends, I have and all their kids and everybody coming over and partying and hanging out and having a good time and eating lasagna till one in the morning. (laughs) And um, I don't even know that in a year I will hug people. Um, and that's concerning because it's, it's, it is a somewhat of a new normal. Um, I, I can tell you on convocation day, I give no less than a hundred hugs. Sure. And, and uh, I don't hug the people that I can tell that don't want it. A lot of the English faculty, <laughs> they give me the look coming up, you know, well, I get that. I, I respect the English faculty boundaries, you know, but uh I do think it is somewhat of a new normal. I also don't think that I'll go to the grocery store. I don't see through the end of the year. Um, I already, you know, stole a ship shopper and got her personal phone number <laughs> to be able to bypass the ship, you know, process and pay her directly in cash mm-hmm. um, and make sure that I, ha- you know, have somebody that that um, I can work with for the long term. And it may be unique somewhat to my situation, but I want to make sure that. I'm being as cautious as I can possibly be. I don't know that other people are in a similar situation where they have direct contact with somebody that they're that concerned about. And so I think that will impact it. And, you know, Palm Beach County is a transient county and not a lot of people I know here have family either living with them or living close by. And uh, I don't know what a year looks like for them, but I know a year looks like for me and my kids is concerning because, you know, my son's going into freshman year in high school. I'd love them to have all of those experiences. And I worry that they're not only going to be disrupted, just like so many, you know, seniors and everything sure. else this year. I worry that they're, you know, that the future will be altered because of it. Um, and the, the future of the way we do family. And we do family with a really big extended open arms to neighbors and friends. And, and we've built up a village of people that we are very close to. And I, I miss those people horribly. Fortunately, we have technology. My kids are less uh, missing their friends than I am and because they're on Fortnite with them and they're talking with them live. And, you know, they're really, they're just more dynamic than uh, I think we are. And sure. trying to be intentional about reaching out to friends and texting and and keeping those connections. I, I couldn't lose them if I tried. I mean, the, the, the friends I've got are, are friends for life, but uh, but I do miss our, our regular kind of hanging out and all the, the usual comings and goings. Because I'm not a homebody. <laughs> My husband is. I mean, he is a homebody to the core. And uh, I, he looks at me by 8 a.m. And if I'm not out of the house bopping around and taking the kids and running here to there, he's looking at me like, what is wrong? You know, is Something's that- wrong there. Yeah. 
and something has been wrong. I've, I've been, my car doesn't have five miles in it in the last two months. And, mm-hmm. and I don't expect it will for a while. So we'll see. Fair enough. This next one is interesting. Uh, In April of 2020, the Pentagon declassified videos of unexplained aerial phenomenon, confirming the existence of UFOs. Do you believe aliens exist? (laughs) This is a really great question. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny because I told my sister I was going to do this podcast with you tonight. And I had sent sent her your other podcast. So she had listened. She goes, did you ask him what he's going to ask you? I'm like, no. She's like, why not? I'm like, well, because he's going to ask it. So why do I need notice? <laughs> sure. But had I known the alien question was coming, I guess I could have used a little prep time. <laughs> um, you know, I guess I don't spend time thinking about that. I probably should. And it would be arrogant to say that we're the only life forms that exist out there. I just don't know that I've seen credible ev- evidence that my arrogance is wrong. Um you know, it also comes kind of back down to, you know, is the United States the center of the earth? Is the earth the center of the universe? <laughs> so, I don't know, but uh, I, my heart tells me that no, there isn't, there isn't other life out there. But I know that that seems ridiculous be, considering how, you know, how minuscule we are in the, the realm of things. So I'm certainly open to it. I just don't know. I'm a believer. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, things get a little touchy at, at this stage. So that might've been a, a softball and this one's I'm the, ready. Bring it on. <laughs> scientific evidence is sometimes doubted and overlooked, even though data and numbers do not lie in air quotes. During these trying times, politicians will deviate from the facts for personal gain, and they have the ability to convince their support base to reconsider those facts. These politicians create a sense of uncertainty when in, and when interpreting data. How do you communicate with the naysayers? Is there a way to convince these individuals of the truth or do you feel that they are a lost cause? So two things. How do you communicate with the naysayers or do you not do that because you think that they're a lost cause? So I used to do it more openly in places like social media and other types of places when I would see dissent of ideas and I would think to myself, well, I have something to contribute here. You know, I don't know if I'm getting lazier or care less about people who don't care about themselves. And so I've walked away more often than not. Like it's become an art form for me to intentionally scroll by things that I feel like I can contribute to because I don't know if it's that I can no longer contribute or that, um, you know, that falls on deaf ears and I already grasped that. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, the way, to, the difficulty we have is, so I teach and chair health sciences and I do have a hard time with my students, but I look at sometimes as a whole. So for example, I have students, you know, sometimes we have students from different places in the world who believe that if something bad happens to you, it was put upon you by God. Sure. And if you have a child with Down syndrome, if you have a disability, if you have, if you have a hurricane. You know, it doesn't matter what it is. It was put upon you by God. They, he put it on you. And so we have to kind of sometimes dispel these types of notions by talking about, tell me about your God. Um, tell me, tell me about, you know, the origins of this so you can understand it better. So I feel like a lot of times I have to learn from students and people to be able to understand their bias uh, of how they come at it. We all come at it with a bias. Um, 
but to be able to understand why their bias is there. The hard part that we face now is uh, a lot of our country has been convinced that all sources of information are false. And that begs the question when you even post CDC data that it's false. And it becomes hard to be able to find reliable sources of information to be able to share, to be able to make informed decisions based on data. That's what we do, is being able to show the numbers and talk about, this is how you come up with a rate of transmission. What does that mean? Can you explain the difference between the measles and COVID and the annual flu and different things? And you hope that the numbers lead people to uh, making educated decisions. We can't always make those for them. I had a student a couple of years ago and I remember she was a, a brilliant young woman and we do these Tracy talks and they're like Ted talks. And I asked her, I said, she, I let them do whatever topic they want as long as they can find you know, credible sources. They have to do 12 sources and it ends up being about a 10 minute speech where they're making an innovative, informative, um, change the world type thing. It's kind of graduate level thinking. So it's not just you did the research. It's what are you going to apply this to? And how are you going to have your mic drop moment of changing the world? What are we going to do with this? And that's a long story short of about 10 massive rubrics, you know. <laughs> and so I said to her, and she said she wanted to do something where it was a total ban on abortions. And I said, okay. I said, well, why don't you do some research and, and start bringing me different things? And she brought me some different things. And I said, I said, looking at these, I said, what is your ultimate goal? And she said, you know, to reduce abortions as much as possible. I said, okay, who does that? I said, look at, you know, states, countries, places where this is happening, and then let me know what you can learn from those places. So when she originally where abortions are happening, or where it's been not, banned, where they're happening, not where it's been banned, but where the the decreased numbers are there. So she could show that there okay. were low numbers in certain places. So the first place she brought me was Utah. I was like it's an outlier. <laughs> I said uh, I said look at look bigger picture. I said look at all kinds of different places. So she brought about ten different places. Well, the original premise that she had was she wanted to outlaw abortions, contraceptions and also prenatal care and um, any type of assistance for uh, insurance after a baby was born or anything along those lines. And I said, okay, I said, see where you can find, who's doing what? She ended up bringing me, uh, by the end of the semester, she brought me places that had the lowest abortion rates. Well, for a health professor, we know that that usually ends up meaning the places that have the highest rates of um, sex education, contraception, access, all of those types of things. She came to the same conclusion because she had done really extensive research and was willing to find it. So I never tried to change her perspective on that reducing abortions was a terrible thing. She shouldn't do this in my classroom. It was on how can you best achieve that? And she ended up proposing this entire um, program for the state of Florida about increasing access to accurate sex education as well as contraception for people that were in um, struggling positions and, and, and money. And it really was a turnaround for her. And another student who was in, taking an opposing position, he took one for his TED Talks at the time, Tracy Talks, we were doing two opposing positions. We, mm-hmm. And he had chosen his on violent video games cause violence, cause people to be violent. And I said, okay, continue to do your research. And by the end of the semester, he came to me and said, I'm doing it on the opposite. I'm doing violent video games don't cause violence, violent people do violent <laughs> video games. And I said, what made you come to that? He goes, well, I did the research. And I, my like little heart almost burst out of my chest. Oh my God, you know? I felt so proud. Like I couldn't believe this. I was verklempt. And uh, so I think a lot of times getting people to change their positions is not necessarily because I think their position is wrong or better. It needs to be better. It's leading them to 
the data pools that and the information and, and resources that will help them to be able to guide into good decisions. It's not always it doesn't always work. And it certainly doesn't always work when you know the guy that failed science class in high school is telling you that the CDC is wrong <laughs> on Facebook. <laughs> Yeah, I, I was heading in that direction that even if you present the data to people, I, I wonder how much of it is something that you can, I don't want to use the word force, but influence in your students because they are, for better or worse, a captive audience. Yeah. They have to do it in order to get a grade. And, and whether you agree with the position or not, they, they have to read and they have to assimilate and they have to digest and then eventually they have to present you with a cogent argument, otherwise they get, you know, a bad grade. But how do you get some random dude on Facebook to do that? You know, um or if it's even a good idea to do it. I don't know. You know, I, I've come to the conclusion the last few months, it hasn't just been the last few months, I'm honestly say it's the last couple of years, that I've engaged less. I used to be much more you know, tenured professor militant on mm -hmm. my Facebook page and on other people's Facebook pages. So sometimes now I joke because I'll have a random cousin or somebody post something crazy on my Facebook page about how the new vaccine is going to microchip us all and it's tied to the 5G network and this is what you're doing. <laughs> right? Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. This is true. Somebody posted this on my page. I'm not kidding you. And I think, to, sometimes I sit there and I think to myself, I don't have to say anything because my face page is usually filled with people like you and wonderful, you know, remarkable teachers. And what do teachers sure. want to do? They want to teach. And so I almost feel bad when somebody does that because then 50 people that are, they're doing their damnedest. The murderous horde descends. Yeah. So I don't need to do it. Sometimes it's a, it's on its own, but a lot of times it's easier for me in person because uh, I feel like, so I see this on all kinds of things. So even on the Google group or on Facebook or other things. So if somebody says something, and even if it's directed at me or not, but it affects me, sometimes I'll say, hey, I'll call you in the morning. Let's talk about this. Nobody wants to talk about it. <laughs> they want to mm -hmm. post about it. They want to be, you know, keyboard warriors. And uh, and instead I say, I'll call you. Let's talk about this. Or if somebody says something, it seems like a, you know, it's, it's, it's going the wrong direction. And I can tell that continuing to discuss by either text, email, um, you know, messages, whatever it is, I'll say, can I call you? And, and I think that's almost automatically a, a defense mechanism that works because it reminds people that you're human and we have a connection. It's really hard to end a 20 minute conversation and think it, and end it in a way that an email would have ended, which is kind of like F you at the end of an email if you don't agree sure. with me. It ends up being, I'm sure there's some ground we can find here that ends up being common. Um, and sometimes that's even with the most unlikely people. I mean, for years I've been uh, working with our union and I love our faculty and I've done, I think, you know, difficult work uh, bargaining and negotiating on behalf of the faculty members with an audience. And that's not always easy. So the ultimate in trying to convince somebody who doesn't agree with you, uh, you know, I joke, but I, I sit across from uh, Mr. Becker uh, for four hours and try to convince him of a, of a position. It's going to cost a lot that he doesn't agree with. <laughs> and that really is a challenging uh, thing. I, I joked with him before one bargaining session and said, I said, yeah, as I was dropping off my son to school, he said, what are you doing today? I said, I'm, I was all dressed in a suit. So I was looking fancy, which is, I would try to look the part. And um, he goes, where are you going? I said, I'm going to go to the college and I'm going to try to represent the faculty. I said, I do some negotiating for them to try and help them with some of the things that we think are important for us and our students, as well as get them paid fairly. And 
And he goes, so you're negotiating? I go, yeah. He goes, you think you'd be better, better get me to clean my room than mom? And he laughed and shut the door. And I thought to myself, nothing, you know, Dick Becker could say to me that day. But <laughs> I've been practicing for this all day long, every day with my four kids and my Italian family and, uh, you know, dinner conversations and, and everything else. So it's a constant battle trying to get people to believe in your position. And, you know, I've been accused of relying on anecdotal um, heartstring stories, uh, which are true. And I try to remind people whenever they're talking about numbers, data or money, the human element, because I think it's easy to be lost in a room full of people. And mm -hmm. um, that's, that's usually kind of a go-to for me, I think. Fair enough. All right. I have a couple more. Uh, with global temperatures on the rise, the health of our oceans and local ecosystems is deteriorating. How do you participate in reducing your carbon footprint? So this is, this is one of the ones where I will say, I mean, I try not to openly tell you I'm a bad human, but this is one where I will say I'm a hypocrite. Um, and I think there's quite a bit of things that we could all say that we, we speak clearly on and and then we don't practice, you know, we think, we think this great thing is a good idea, but not in my neighborhood. Or we think, you know, everyone should recycle. Well, I don't, um, you know, we put out recycling bins, but they're not certainly as full as they should be. And we do talk about, you know, I just watched a documentary. I think it was a, a documentary this week. My brother-in-law and I watched about Michael Moore had produced something and he wasn't in it, but it was another guy that was on YouTube. It was free. It came out on Monday. It was an interesting documentary, but even in that, I just sit there critically with bias. Um, arguing, well, tell me how much better either solar or wind is than coal. You know, we're that documentary was essentially saying they're all bad. Like, aren't there varying degrees of bad? You know, I feel like bad is not the word that academians would use. We would like sure. to see numbers. And I try to present everything to my students with the basis of data. So even when we talk about contraception in my classes, we're not talking about just this is one contraception, this and another. This is the, the percentage and number of people that will become pregnant each year that use this as only their form of data as evidenced by 100,000 people in California last year. That's what they need to know. And if you use these two, this is the result. Um, and I think to myself with something like recycling and, and the waters, I'd love to say that I'm doing more. And, and I feel like I, I should. I was going to say I will, but I don't know that that's true either. So um, you've outed me. I, I haven't. Uh, <laughs> this wonderful person that's going to be. Who is that? Who is that? Was Nat King? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I cannot disclose the identity of the person. Where did you get your questions from? Well, so at the end of this call, I will ask you to send me three to five questions for the individual tomorrow morning. Uh huh. I mean, cool. I'm in. So every person submits questions or I request people to submit questions for the following person, but they don't know who the previous person is and they don't know who the next person is. So was your last person Sinisalchi? I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> I'm texting him after this. You're welcome to. Um, but the, the person I spoke with this morning doesn't know that you're next. And similarly, you don't know who I'm meeting with or who I'm speaking with tomorrow morning at eight. But just like these questions came out for you, I'm hoping that you're able to do the same thing for, for the next individual. I certainly will. Um, this last one is a little bit of a softball again. So she or he ends on a softer note. Do you have a hidden talent you feel comfortable disclosing and talking about? Wow, a hidden talent. Um, I... Or not hidden talent. I mean, one of each maybe. <laughs> yeah. Uh... 
I don't know that there's any credible talents at all. Um, So I'm not thinking of any, <laughs> no, I mean, I can, I can hit a golf ball a long way. I mean, stuff like that. I don't know if that counts, but, uh, I don't know, you know, I don't do, I, I don't do, and I don't get music or art or anything that other people find interesting. I don't watch TV and I don't like movies and I don't listen to music. Um, so that's how you get things done. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think it's an intentional endeavor. It just mm-hmm. doesn't work for my brain. I mean, um, I can't get seven minutes into a movie and and stay with it. My husband will joke, and and I did I did make it through a series of something for the first time in a decade, and it was the Mandalorian because my twelve year old was like I said, my fourteen year old is like me. He's really loud and he's extra emotional and bear hugs and everything's urgent and he's very dramatic and and wonderful. And um, my twelve year old is remarkable and wonderful, but he's more of an old soul and quiet. And he smiles and he's chill. And he's very zen and comfortable in his own skin. He's just a, a totally cool kid. And he's like, you want to watch The Mandalorian, Mom? And I'm like, I'd love to. I didn't know what the hell this Mandalorian was. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm making popcorn. You know, We're chilling. And we're sitting together, snuggle up in our blankets, watching Mandalorian. So I made it through the whole thing. And I, and I loved it because I got to share it with him. And I did mm-hmm. like it. As a matter of fact, I, th- I thought it was a, a good a good thing. But um, I, don't, I don't know that I have any... Uh, hidden talents, maybe um, bringing people together, uh, maybe uh, maybe making other people feel comfortable when they don't feel comfortable, maybe, I don't know. Um, I don't know what else I can think of. Fair enough. Last question. This one's from me. What would you title this podcast and or your episode? I should have seen that coming. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one question I think every, I mean, the two questions are tell me about yourself or whatever it is you feel comfortable sharing. And the other one is what would you title the podcast? So the first thing that came to my mind when you said that was, so we have a lot of parties at my house and by parties, I mean, not, not the usual parties. I, I send out a text at five o'clock and say, anybody want to come for dinner? And 50 people are here by six. And <laughs> We enjoy wine and pasta. My dad makes all kinds of fresh pasta and I make all kinds of food and, and we love this. I mean, th- this is fun. And the kids are all swimming and people are fishing and we're just having a, night, a good time. And I think the best party we've had at this, this house I've been in, I've, I've um, only been in this house for about a year. And I bought this house because my husband has had a six vertebrae, spinal fusion, two hip replacement, Yikes. a knee, a shoulder done. He's everything done. He's bionic. And we needed a one story. So this one came up and I loved it. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. So I I bought it right away and we moved in and we had a party on a Tuesday. And that party went until the wee hours of the night and we had the best (laughs) party ever. And we joke that our our kind of motto is party like it's Tuesday. And so no matter what it is, we say, is it going to be a party like it's Tuesday? And then, you know, friends will come over. And I Mm -hmm. do think to myself, I think um, a lot of times people wait to party when, um, they wait to have an event or something fun scheduled or to do something or they wait till their house is perfect or they wait till their kids are perfect. I can't wait for either. And we try to party like it's Tuesday at every opportunity. And, and that, that includes meetings at the campus. Like I'll bring a, a big tray of sausage salamis and um, cheese and prosciuttos to campus meetings because we should enjoy that. And I think a lot of times people separate themselves too much from what they're doing they think of it as a job or they think of it as something that's going on at the school or something that they have to be at. 
And I think those are really good opportunities to party like it's Tuesday and, and to get other people to enjoy what they're doing too. So party like it's Tuesday makes sense <laughs> for, for your episode. No, I, I can, I can totally see it happening. What about the, the podcast at large? Any oh, suggestions? You know, it's funny you said that because my sister Christina said to me early, and so she's much more like you than uh, you'd really like my sister Christina. You'd like both my sisters, as a matter of fact. Um, so my sister Christina was a math person, and mm -hmm. her degrees were in uh, math and engineering and things like this. Lots of math. So when the kids ask me what she does in her underpants and, and at her computer at home all day, I'm like, she does math in the computer. <laughs> 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 That's it. Well, um, she said to me, she goes, what's his name of his podcast? And like, I don't know. She goes, what do you mean you don't know? It's got to have some really great catchy name. And I'm like, I have no idea what the name of the podcast is. I'm like, he just has this really brilliant voice and he's really calm with the people. And he seems like he gets them to relax and they answer all the questions. I'm like, you could ask them anything. And uh, so I will ask her because I think she'd be a better spokesperson for our, uh, our family, being able to come up with a name for your podcast. Sure. Um, you can use party like you party like it's Tuesday if you want. I won't um, fault you. I have some, so I usually name everything after Jimmy Buffett songs. So all of the businesses that I've created for real estate or PAs or LLCs or you know, other other types of things are all named after Jimmy Buffett songs. And my favorite Buffett song is Mother Mother Ocean, which doesn't seem as appropriate for a podcast. But if I were having a podcast, I would totally name it that. <laughs> I, I think that that's equally nondescript because I've had people ask me so, or, or at least tell me that, hey, if you're embarking on this journey and you want to do it semi-seriously, or at least put in some time and effort into it, you should make it marketable. And, you know, someone who's looking at the title on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or whatever, some website, they, they should be able to look at it and say, oh, that's what he's going to be talking about, coffee with colleagues or conversations with colleagues or something or the other. And I think the title that you gave is equally nondescript. And I don't think anyone, unless they're a fan of Jimmy Buffett, and even then, I don't think anyone would be able to say, oh, that's what that thing is about. True. So I, I chose it partly because I couldn't come up with something catchy or, or, or clever enough. And I said, well, why do something when you can get other people to do it for you? So instead of me coming up with a title, I figured... I, I'm not that clever to come up with clever questions to ask a hundred people. This could be a staple. And it, it, it's been interesting because it, it also allows me to try to get into the minds of people that I'm speaking with and say, you know, what do you like? Oh, Jimmy Buffett. I need, did not know that about you. And uh, Rhonda, whose episode will get released shortly, she's a big Celine Dion fan. And I didn't know that about her either. So does she tell you anything about... Um me? Do you know that Rhonda and I are good friends? Yes. She, I think you came up a couple of times. Something about your house. Yes, I sold her my she house. She bought your house and so I don't know what else she mentioned. Of, she's part of my party like it's Tuesday. <laughs> and she lives in my neighborhood. So all the houses I've owned recently were in, in the same neighborhood. And oh. um, I had shown her houses in the neighborhood for part of real estate. She had come up from Boca and she, and. I said, I had already bought another house and I was moving out. I wasn't, I wasn't trying to keep my house clean with four children in it. You know, as mm -hmm. the old, old saying goes, it's like brushing your teeth with an Oreo cookie in your mouth. And I was trying to get out to do that. And I, I told Rhonda and she had seen my house. She's like, I'd love your house. And I was like, I'd sell you my house. <laughs> <laughs> we closed like three weeks later. And, uh, 
and I joked with her because I moved her right in between all of my good friends and and the people that I love the most. And she's just uh, I've been so glad that she's been close here, and and am happy that she moved she moved here to be able to to be a part of it because I was. I was friends with her, but not mm-hmm. not even to the you know to the to the level that I'm friends with her here. And now she's part of the family with with us and her kids and her boys are the same age as my boys. And that's, that's wonderful. Well, I'm glad things worked out well. I tell you what, though, Anurag, you have a gift with this. I mean, um, like I joke with you that I hate everything. Right? We know that I hate all all things. I usually start with perspective. I hate it until I don't. And music, po- my sister Christine has been trying to make me listen to podcasts. She sends them to me and. And I don't watch videos, listen to podcasts, watch TV or any of this. And so when I told her a couple of weeks ago, I was like, oh, you have to listen to this podcast I'm listening to. <laughs> and she was like laughing at me. She goes, what do you mean you're listening to? <laughs> she goes, I've been trying for 20 years to send you podcasts, you know, and I don't even listen to music or anything in the car. And so I listen to podcasts before I go to bed. And I usually only make it about 35 minutes and I try to catch the rest of it uh, when I can throughout the week. And uh you just have such a wonderful way with, I think, people participating and being able to get, and I've listened to the, you know, the handful that you've got going out there and, and you do a great job being able to get people to, to talk and be able to, I think, shine through who they really are and you take a back seat to that. And, and I think that's a gift and you have that incredible DJ voice that doesn't hurt either. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I don't know why people say that, but you're ready to I be guess. on NPR. I'm telling you that. And I don't know. Oh, if that's a compliment and a half. If there's something that pays more money, you should be on that. <laughs> you're free. You're too free with your praise, but I'll, I'll accept it graciously. Thank you. <laughs> I've enjoyed talking to you tonight, Anurag. I appreciate it. Pleasure's been all mine. Thank you very much. I, I I know I'm well overstaying my welcome, but thank you again for spending Friday evening with me. I love it. And I, I look forward to listening to this whole thing again. Yes, editing. Once I get it back. That I said that makes me look bad. <laughs> I, I usually don't. I, and I always listen back to them thinking, you know, I, I, maybe I need to cut something out or because that's what people that have podcasts do. You know, they, sure. they go into audition and garage band and they edit certain things out. And all the tutorials that I watched before I started doing this was like people have like three second clips of, of, you know, splice, 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 splice. And they take two hours to clean up five minutes worth of video or five minutes worth of audio. And it's like, no, there's a pause there and that pause is appropriate. It's right. a pregnant pause and it, it needs to be there to get the the gravity of the answer across. If if it just sounds like someone's talking about, you know, to take a serious topic, abortion, it shouldn't sound like they, they just came up with a, a very well thought out answer. Maybe it should. I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah, what do I know? I think you're, I think you're right uh, for making it organic. Um, that's what I think makes anything good it, you know a lot of times when you look at it and think why why are instagram influencers um who they are mm-hmm. most of the time when people rise up through something like that that's hard for people like professors to understand is because their their content is so raw and organic it reaches people that otherwise wouldn't have been reached and i think uh, a podcast is no different uh, and i think it's the same as what you do when you're teaching and this is just a, another platform for you to be able to have that niche and teach more people, which is really what you're doing. Well, I hope people get some enjoyment out of it. That, they, that's the well, goal. And they, well, they get to know people that they don't. I hate everything. Right. I like it. So <laughs> <laughs> high praise. I'll use that as, as one of my yeah. testimonials. I hate everything. And I like this. 
<laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> All right. Well, enjoy the rest of your evening, and I, I hope to talk to you soon. You too, Adderog. I enjoyed it. Have a good night. You as well. Take care. Bye. Thanks for making it to the end. Tune in on Friday to hear a story about how a math professor at the Lake Worth campus ended up in Alaska and hung out with Kevin Costner, Cheech Marin, and Don Johnson. Which he did not find fascinating or funny. Now, everybody else did. Um, Kevin Costner got extremely angry and left. And Cheech Marin walked over to me and put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Listen, little girl, I'm the one who tells the jokes here, not you. Until next time, for another 92 times, take care.